0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod. I'm Simon Mayborn and today I'm joined by Javier Bordon. Javi is a PhD student in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion and he's sitting right in front of me which is very exciting. It's only the second one of these that we've done in the flesh so I'm delighted that we're able to do this. Javi is a PhD fellow in our department and a PhD fellow with SEPAD, and it's super exciting to see all the amazing work that he's been doing we're discussing today a wonderful report titled spatializing securitization in the middle east which is recently published by cepad and it's an absolutely fantastic bit of scholarship containing some wonderful essays and I'm delighted that we are here to
1: talk about that right now. Javi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Simon. And uh, well, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Likewise. First of all, I should
0: say congratulations. Thank you. It's, thank uh, you. it's really exciting to see this out, to see it um, in the quote unquote flesh and to, to see all of the fruits of your labor out there online for, for everyone to read it's a really fascinating report so well done and thank you
1: thank you for giving me the opportunity to actually well uh, embarking myself in this project and uh, it's been fascinating the, well having the chance to bring all these scholars with different backgrounds different uh, interests and different ways of approaching space and security coming together and well Here's the result, and I hope that everyone likes it. Yeah, well,
0: I'm sure they will. I've heard some really positive feedback already. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm only expecting more. Javi, where does it come from? I mean, why, why did you decide that this report was necessary? What's the What's the thinking behind it?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Thank you, Simon. So, well, I guess it it's been very much related to my to the journey throughout my PhD so far. I'm one year and a half in my PhD, so almost two years, actually. We'll stick with a year and a half. A year and a half, yeah, closer to a year and a half rather than two years. Just to make us both feel a bit better. Yeah, <laughs> I do agree. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So, well, I started my PhD with a very clear idea that I wanted to work on secretization theory. And then, well, as you start reading, you start having discussions with your supervisors, with other scholars, you start to realize that, well, either it's not enough or it could be done differently or what you're doing, or what you're doing already has been done before by others. And here's where I became acquainted with spatial theory, first and foremost, I could say, through the work of Doreen Massey. And, uh, of course, as you are aware, Simon I also wrote a short piece on Doreen Mass' work for SePA. Mm-hmm. and um, basically, I just came to to realize that um, secretization as a process and then the understanding or the notion of space also as a process, they come together very nicely, and that not many people or very few people actually were doing stuff on bringing these two different approaches together.
0: That's really interesting. It sounds like you have very wise supervisors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I jest um, for, the, for the tape. Mm. I am one of Harvey's supervisors, and it's been a real pleasure exploring this um, on his journey so far. But um, leaving that sort of frivolity aside, I think it's a really interesting point of synergy. But for people unaware with, with what that, point is, where securitization theory and spatial theory come together. What is it? I mean, how would you describe um, the coming together and why is that coming together important?
1: Right. Well, I think to start, it's very much related to this notion that both security and space are processes and they are shaped and at the same time they shape relations. So this processual and relational understanding of both security and space, they come together very nicely. And then you can, of course, tackle these questions from different perspectives of, or different scopes or different ways of appreciating, of well, understanding, approaching space. So, some of the contributions in in the report have focused more on the materiality or physicality of space while others have focused more on the sociality of space so then why is this important well because you, you could say that space as being formed and forming relations is where basically social and political life plays out and um, Then questions of order, identity, power, authority, and legitimacy, but also about affect, emotion, political subjectivity, they all take shape and manifest in and across space, basically. Mm -hmm. But then Uh, where's the
0: securitization part come in?
1: So in terms of securitization, I think um, when we, and this is, perhaps more related to my personal project, and I wouldn't talk about, let's say, the, how all the contributions to the, all the contributors to the report could tackle this question, but in my view, the whole, well, the dominance or the prevalence of speech in the classical understanding of secretization theory is basically not enough. And I think that by bringing space together, with security or by just factoring in space, we are kind of challenging this prevalence or this dominance of speech act theory when it comes to secretization. And um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways of looking at it. Mm-hmm. I guess a different way would be that security or secretization well relates to this power and constation of how political projects should look like. So secretization is not only about deciding or determining what's threatening, but it's also about all the other identities that come with it and how different positions are taken by agents in and across space. And therefore, well, who's entitled to do what? Mm -hmm. And... um, um, not only who's my enemy and who's my friend, but also who's dominant and who's dominated.
0: Sounds like you're getting into a broader debate about the political there then. Uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. So I think for, and, and then I guess I can talk on behalf of all, my, all the contributors of, for the report in this regard, is that we all try to challenge the ontological and epistemological distinction between security and politics and mm-hmm. we try to blur this boundary basically by trying to say that well security is very much about politics and the other way around mm-hmm. and basically they cannot be understood one without the other
0: yeah i think that's a really really valid point and a really interesting mm-hmm. one that comes out in in lots of different ways have you mentioned materiality and sort of ideational um, factors that play out in space. Just talk to us about the two main strands then within the report that cut across the different contributors. Um, you've sort of hinted that there are a couple of different groupings, if you will, that, that play out here. So if you can just tell us what those two currents are, and then we can start talking a little bit about the, um, the chapters themselves, please.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, so I could say on the one hand, some of the contributions would focus more on that physical, material dimension of space. So basically how security in the form of practices, discourse, narratives, uh, actions or behavior taken by agents, um, how that basically materializes or takes shape in what we understand as Physical space, how that manifests, uh, let's say in different sites of, let's say, religious sites, or military sites, or different social, um, well, social sites also that were mundane and everyday life tra- traverse are unfold and develop basically, mm-hmm. and. Um, so, here, even if there's this broad, encompassing interest or purpose that brings the whole report together in terms of, well, defining how both security and space shape each other. So, when it comes to this, the physicality or the materiality of space, so there's a more clear focus on lived experience. Space and uh, nobody, Henry, the French scholar Henry Lefebvre, which also uh, figures quite prominently across the contributions, uh, how build the built environment and lived space uh, manifest or takes meaning through security. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other hand, those who are focusing more on the sociality of space here the spatial appears more as a metaphor if you like so it's more of the understanding of sp- i like that it's more thank you it's more about the st- understanding of space as the as again as during mass you could say you not know, the sphere of multiplicity and the sphere of possibility so it's more of the understanding of how different agents which are basically well uh interacting and uh, engaging in different relations in and across space, how they take different positions in this space. And here, in this social uh, understanding of space, if you you like, also the work of Pierre Bourdieu, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu appears because prominently Mm -hmm. in a number of contributions. Um, So I think it's quite interesting These different understandings or perspectives to tackle the questions about space, how they come together and in a way they engage in a dialogue as well. Because while even if some of the contributions use space as a metaphor in terms of who's taking this or that position, who's what hierarchies appear, what kind of order Mm -hmm. is going to materialize in the social Metaphorical wave, like, but how that they manifest in the built environment on physical space, and basically how these different dimensions of space interact with each other is fascinating.
0: Yeah, it it really is that that idea of order and um, that interplay of the metaphorical and the the material, it's it's really fascinating to see how that that plays out, and in in a lot of cases. There is an interplay between the metaphorical and the material, and that the two sort of riff off each other, if you will um, which leads to some really rich and provocative findings but let let's talk about them havevi please let's let's talk a little bit about the 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 essays not too much because we don't want people to uh to to rely purely on this podcast we want this to be a teaser for uh going away and, and reading the essays themselves. But let, let's work our way through it, please. So it um, begins, obviously, with your introduction. But then where do we go to from there? We've got a contribution from Marina Calculi.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Just a little appetizer. Yeah, <laughs> and they, well, whoever's interested, they will need to go and read the report. Um, yeah, well, um. Marina's contribution is fascinating and also very timely, especially well, now that well, everything that's happening with Syria at the regional stage, and uh, how potentially, you know, different alignments are shifting. And this well, it's, it's all over the news, basically, the discussions and debates about the potential or non-existent normalization of Syria.. Mm-hmm. So what this contribution brings together, it's this process of how first the Syrian regime, Assad's, Bashar al-Assad's regime was first securitized, and quite recently de-securitized by uh, some of the important key regional players, mostly the Arab Gulf states, and uh, Marina focuses mostly on Um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and um, what she would argue is that these processes of or sequences of secretization and desecretization are quite shocking given the fact that the domestic situation in Syria hasn't changed according to the demands Mm -hmm. that would best spark the desecretization in the first place. And what she could argue is that we need to take into consideration international hierarchies to understand the behavior and the secretization and desecretization practices of these Arab Gulf states. Mm -hmm. And basically, and this is a very interesting concept that she's been coining in the, she coins in the report, this idea of mirroring secretization, of mirroring desecretization, and basically arguing that our Gulf states are acting not necessarily on behalf, but mirroring the intentions of other actors in the international stage. Mm-hmm. Where this and I won't identify, but I guess everyone who's listening can guess who which actors mm-hmm. we are talking about.
0: Yeah. So moving from from this contribution, we go to yours, which also looks at, at Saudi and brings out this idea of um, ordering assemblage. So tell us a bit about yours, Javi, please. <laughs> sure. And don't be modest. It's a wonderful contribution.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. No, but it's time. I don't think it's time to brag. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, well, so um, it's, it draws from my thesis in in a number of aspects, mostly when it comes to the analytical framework. So, in this framework, well, what I try to do is to bring together different elements of Pierre Bacotier's sociology or social theory, secretization theory, and a bit of spatial theory, and basically to argue that different secretization processes uh, that occur at different scales. Mm-hmm different levels of analysis if you want to, fa- to follow the more international relations nomenclature. Which, uh, by the way, I guess virtually all the contributions in the report challenge this level yeah. of analysis problem. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, so this framework, what it tries to do is to uh, identify, trace, and lastly analyze how different secretization processes mm-hmm. which are actuated, energized by different actors at the transnational field. In my case, mostly focusing on Saudi actors or actors sanctioned by the Saudi state. And on the other hand, the domestic actors in the case of Egypt, how the, their practices, the kinds of power that they deploy and mobilize, how they all come together and converge in the secretization of the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And I start right after the 2011 uprisings, the so called Arab Spring in Egypt, and um, up to 2021, so up to very recently. And basically, this idea of ordering assemblages, what I try to do is try to identify different patterns of relations, how different alignments and oppositions of friend, enemy, um, dominant, dominated, who's right, who's wrong, who's Islamic and who's Mm un-Islamic. How these assemblages, how these lines, boundaries, they come together to um, basically bring different agents, different actors together and try to create and potentially crystallize a particular normative understanding of or mm-hmm. vision of order,
2: yeah,
1: and how that plays out in, this, in the Egyptian context in interplay in interaction with the transnational, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's something
0: that I try and do in my contribution as well yeah. tease out that interplay of the, um, the, the two different levels of analysis, if you will. And I think you're right to say that, that a number of us are challenging that. IR hell, the IR canon in in many ways, mm. um, but particularly this levels of analysis problem to say that there are distinct levels that that people operate at, and mm. I think that's particularly evident in the Bahraini case where the um, the Bahraini domestic political field is is dramatically conditioned by what's happening regionally, be it Saudi um, fears about Iran, be it um, sect-based divisions in Iraq or, mm-hmm. or, or a whole host of other factors mm-hmm. but what's happening or I argue in the essay is that there is this complex interplay between the domestic and the regional and they are mutually constitutive shaping one another challenging one another mm-hmm. and it's a complex and fluid um, interaction mm-hmm. if you will so you can't understand one without the other which I think is it's something that a number of, of contributors try and do as well.
1: Absolutely. That's precisely the case. And, yeah, when it comes to your contribution, I think it's also very important, as you said, not only uh, stressing how the transnational impacts or shapes the domestic, but actually ha- how also the domestic resonates in the transnational. Yeah. And how they are mutually constitutive, as you said. And that's why I think it's very it's very cool, actually. It's very interesting how um, the different contributions come together. Because we start first with Marina, which was focusing more on the global stage, mm-hmm. international hierarchies. Then you and I focus more on this interplay between the transnational and the domestic, and then we move to Jerro and Dimas' contribution, which focuses more on the translocal.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: how that also fits into the national level, if you like. Mm-hmm. So this interplay between the state and sub-state levels and the local and the translocal. And it's also very interesting, well, um, one of the, this concept, uh, this mode of theorizing that they've been working on for quite some time now, this idea of nested security fields mm-hmm. that they also draw from Bordier's work, as you and I do. and uh, But they perhaps they can, they even take it step further by saying that, well, um, these uh, security conceptions, because they start by asking the question in the southern suburbs of Beirut, in Tahir, um, who, uh, who are these the city inhabitants when they need to ask for help security-wise, who they are asking from mm-hmm. and you know through their ethnographic research very empirically thorough and also theoretically rich uh they come up to with this very fluid um model of understanding how these security conceptions play out and how they are very much situated locally or uh but not only locally also, the type of incident that's going on in that particular, uh, that particular security event that is happening in the southern suburbs. And also, very, very importantly, how the what they call the social conditioning, mm-hmm. what we, we address through the concept of habitus yeah. in Bogdia, right? How the social conditioning uh, also fits into... Security perce- perceptions and eventually security decisions, and who's my friend, who's my enemy, who I'm asking help from, or who I'm more suspicious about.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really, really fascinating. And I, I really like this idea of nesting. I think it's conceptually, theoretically, absolutely fascinating. Then we move on to uh, Elizabeth Monia's contribution, which is a little different, but mm-hmm. different in a, obviously a very good way, mm-hmm. um, taking the, the story to Egypt. Yes. And looking at inclusion and exclusion mm. of, um, of Christians in Egypt, in mm. particular national religious spaces.
1: Yes, yes. I, I, I love Elizabeth's contribution for many reasons. All, well, to start, I guess, um, the argument is very provocative in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, because what she's arguing is that, while well, when we talk about the Coptic, The Christian Coptic uh, question in Egypt and what's the place or the position of uh, the Coptic community in the national discourse and the national identity, the national social fabric basically, what she's trying to argue is that it's not the existence of the Coptic community in itself what it's a matter that should be securitized uh, in the eyes of the Egyptian regime, but what actually needs to be securitized is their condition as a minority. Mm-hmm. And this is fascinating because this is what her integration or incorporation of Giorgio Agamben's work, this idea of uh, inclusive exclusion uh, through Agambe's state of exception and the camp, etc., his ideas of sovereign power. How it's very interesting how this plays out in terms of, on the one hand, the regime is basically trying to shield, to protect this hegemonic national discourse Mm -hmm. uh, that by necessity needs to bring the Coptic community as being part and parcel of the. Egyptian national ethos of the Egyptian nation, but on the one on on the one hand, in order to avoid the minoritization of the Coptic community, the regime engages or forms all different kinds of relations with Mm -hmm. the leaders of the Coptic community itself and also employs and deploys different mechanisms, different legal and most important for Elizabeth, extra legal means. Yeah. To on the one hand keep the Coptic community within the national social space but at the same time outside yeah. this national social space by now acknowledging their yeah. political subjectivity. Basically.
0: It's a really really fascinating piece and um one that that, as you say raises a lot of questions but hopefully from this conversation you're getting a sense of the breadth of of inquiry here and the the sheer scope of questions of securitization and space and how it all starts to fit together i think this type of volume would be remiss and it would um it would suffer a little if there was nothing on checkpoints
1: yes Definitely.
0: And this is where uh, Maya's contribution is really, really wonderful here.
1: Yes, I do fully agree. And uh, while well, Maya's contribution also uh, draws from a lot of ethnographic work that she's been conducted in, all across Lebanon, which mm-hmm. is fascinating, she's uh, uh, doing a lot of research on how military checkpoints are deployed, Uh, across the country so mapping all these checkpoints and most importantly and this is where this what we were discussing before about lived space this is where maya's contribution makes a lot of sense Yeah. so her whole contribution revolves around the idea that checkpoints are way more than infrastructure and they should be understood as well first and foremost as space but space that Um, it doesn't stop or it doesn't uh, it's not limited to the checkpoint itself Mm -hmm. it's an understanding of space that requires both uh, so it becomes very much implicated with the idea of time and the idea of experience in the sense of how the checkpoint is perceived, experienced before, during and after The checkpoint after the rite of passage through the checkpoint, Mm -hmm. if you like. Yeah. And this in Maya, what she's trying to do is to explore all the different perceptions, emotions, predispositions as well, and uh, that come that happened and how these are embodied in those who go through the checkpoint. And basically, um, how also their backgrounds and the familiarity that checkpoints create as symbols and as rituals, Mm -hmm. how this may raise perceptions of security for some, perceptions of insecurity for others.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And it's fascinating. Yeah, um, really,
0: really. really.
1: How the biological, the physical, the affective, the social comes together in her Mm -hmm. contribution.
0: And then we end with Gabrielle's piece. Yes. And Gabriel is a scholar whose work I really, really admire, doing fascinating stuff. And this is another amazing contribution from him and, um, yeah, really, really important stuff.
1: Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I, we do concur that we both really like what Gabriel is doing on a broadly basis. And this contribution in particular, I think it's also very timely. Um, for World Bring is. And it kind of closes uh, the, the, re- the whole report with what, Ma- what was started with Marina's contribution mm-hmm. in the first place. Uh, so, going back to Syria and looking more at the domestic, if you like. but And this is very important uh, in Gabriel's contribution um, how urban reconstruction is happening in Syria. Is very much related to international and regional dynamics as well and he is very adamant in stressing this mm-hmm. um, so what he basically is trying to do is to see how this very um heterogeneous uh, diverse in terms of the mechanisms that come together urban reconstruction process pursued by the Syrian regime in the, in the aftermath or during the conflict, the current conflict in Syria, how um, this plays out in the built environment, in physical space, and how it's trying to shape political order mm-hmm. in Syria. So basically trying to define through this urban planning and urban reconstruction who's been loyal to the regime and who has been challenging or an enemy to the regime and therefore to try to construct a post-conflict order that eventually will play in the regime's favor.
0: It's fascinating and it really does bring out that interplay of the metaphorical and the material i think yes in uh, in gabriel's piece yes Um, this idea of rewarding those who are loyal um is is one that is intellectually very very rich Mm -hmm. and politically hugely problematic Mm -hmm. Mm um but gabriel deals with it in a really sophisticated manner as Mm -hmm. as he always does Mm -hmm. um We've, we've covered the contributions mm-hmm. here, and there's some really, really important stuff that we've just not been able to get into here. But that's why the report is out and available for people to, to go and read. So I, I do urge you all to, to get a hold of a copy. It's available on the SEPAD website. I'll put the link in the notes below so you'll be able to, to get a hold of it. But Javi, huge thank you for your time just now, and a huge congratulations again for everything that you've done with this report. It really is wonderful. I really enjoyed contributing to it. So thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you for for giving us your time just now and talking us through it. Been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. I really enjoyed our discussion. And just a uh, last note uh, from my end is, um and I'm quite happy and proud even, I would say about the report, but also about the fact that this is the start of a very, what I hope is going to be a very fruitful co- collaboration amongst all the scholars that have taken part, I'm looking forward to what comes next. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Javi.
0: A huge thanks to Javi for his time just now. It's been a real pleasure talking with him about the report and all of his efforts. It really is a fantastic collection of essays, so do check it out and uh, stay tuned for more. As always, thank you for listening. Till next
2: time.